We are all on a journey. The trouble is, sometimes we just don't actually know where we're going. We get turned around and off track like we're stumbling in the dark. What we all need is a light. We need a God to follow closely and to show us the way. Our light, our God, our teacher is Jesus. We need to follow him. Is Jesus walking around with us? How can he guide us? How can he show us the way? See, following Jesus doesn't have to be that complicated. Jesus can show us the way because Jesus is the way. Good morning, everyone. So good to be here. Um, Listen, there are some Sundays that like when the worship's over, like I'm good. Like it's like I got what I came for today. We can go home. Like I am so full spiritually right now that I could leave. However, my little girl Casey is on the the first first row. row. She used to always say at the dinner, like, my, um, my regular food stomach is full, but my dessert stomach is still hungry. So, like, my, re- like my regular spirit is full this morning, but my dessert, like, spirit is still hungry. So we're going to go ahead and dig into God's Word, if that's okay. Is that okay with everyone? Matthew chapter 9. Let's open the Word of God. Grab your notes so that you can follow along as we get ready to dig into a brand new series called Jesus People. We'll be in this series in Matthew 9 through 11 all the way through Palm Sunday. So we'll be hanging out right here for almost six months, really learning what it looks like to follow Jesus well. We've got a unique opportunity for some leaders in our church if you are interested. Dr. Tony Evans is going to be in town speaking at a ministry event that's led by two people who are real near and dear to the heart of Journey, Dayton Moore, the uh, Kansas City Royals general manager. You heard about this organization that um, he and some people in the community started in 2020. We actually did a Sunday with Dayton talking about his heart for this organization, and Pastor Jimmy Dodd, who leads Pastor Serve. Um, they have invited Dr. Tony Evans in to speak to Christians in the community about racial unity in God's church. How do you make God's church, how do we make our city look more like the kingdom of God? A lot of us read Dr. Evans' book, Oneness Embraced, last year as we went through the racial divide that our country was experiencing. And for those of you who want to lean in and learn a little more, we need you to just take your connection card today, write on it, Tony Evans' event, Bring it up to us at the end of the service or throw it in the box. We'll text you a link. It's not a public invitation, so like the whole public is not invited. But people in our church, because of the connection um, that Jimmy and Dayton have to our church, if you all would like to go be a part of this luncheon on October 14th, our church has purchased four tables, and our pastors will just be hosting people there uh, and listening to Dr. Tony Evans, one of my favorite Bible teachers of all time. So if you want to jump into that experience, we would absolutely love for you to be a part of that. Yesterday at prayer, we got an opportunity to commission three new elders. I always hesitate giving you reading material at the beginning of the sermon because some of you now will stop listening and you'll just read the rest of the time. But if that's you, that's okay. You can go back and watch later online. Um, We've got an insert in your bulletin introducing you to the eight elders who govern and lead our church. Three of them are brand new. Again, that's like reading material for later, Um, but just know that it's there, and if you're going to read it the rest of the time, go back and listen to the sermon later, because we're trying to figure out what does it mean to be Jesus people? What does it mean to be followers of Jesus, identified with Jesus? What does it mean to be on mission with Jesus? That's the purpose of the series. Here's the premise. We want to, over the next six months in Matthew 9 through 11, come to the full realization of what it means to be followers of Jesus who live on mission for Jesus. We like Jesus. 
We've been studying since Matthew chapter 5 last October. So for more than a year, we've been studying the teaching of Jesus. Matthew 5, 6, and 7, 31 Sundays just in the Sermon on the Mount. We got to the end of that sermon and like the people listening 2,000 years ago were like, we like this guy. We like to follow this guy. In Matthew chapter 8, we learned how to build strong faith so that we could follow well. And now we're following, like we're all in. We like his teaching, we believe in his power, and now we're just living life every day with Jesus. What does it look like to live life every day with Jesus? What are the things that we're going to learn and experience? That's the goal of this series. Some people have heard the message of Jesus. They've seen the power of Jesus. They're now following Jesus. And we're just going to learn their experiences because as we do that, we're going to see some realizations that followers of Jesus have that really help them build a foundation of their life. We're going to see nine over this series, nine realizations that that Jesus people have, that people who follow Jesus, these are things they realize about life. Today's big idea is going to be realization number one. Our greatest need and our greatest purpose are spiritual. We're going to spend the rest of the message talking about this realization. Our greatest need and our greatest purpose in life are both spiritual. Before we ever read scripture at our church, we pray. We're on day 15 of 21 days of prayer. For those of you who've been tracking with us either in person or online, today on day 15 of 21 days of prayer, right in the middle of our spiritual armor that we're learning about this week, we're going to pray for spiritual clarity regarding these two areas, our greatest spiritual need and what our great spiritual purpose is. Would you bow your heads with me here in the room? Take that deep breath. And on this day 15 of 21 days of prayer, I'm going to ask you to pray for spiritual clarity in your life. Would you, in the next few moments, ask Jesus to show you your greatest spiritual need? Just ask Jesus to show you what is the thing you need the most. And then pause three to five seconds and think about what the answer to that question might be. If you know what that need is, or you can feel it, but you can't name it, would you ask him to step into it and meet that need? Would you ask Jesus to show you your spiritual purpose? Why did he create you? Specifically in this season, what's your purpose in life spiritually? Ask Jesus to show you your spiritual purpose and then ask him to give you the courage and the strength to fulfill it. Jesus, we bow before you today, the vast majority of us here, because we're Jesus people. We're your followers. You are our savior. You are our spiritual leader. So God, speak to us today. Show us that our greatest need and our greatest purpose are both spiritual. And then meet those needs and help us to fulfill those purposes. That's our prayer. And we ask it today in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Matthew 9, verses 1 through 13 is going to be our key Bible study text today. And here's what it says. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. That was the town of Capernaum. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? 
But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat, and go home. Then the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God who had given such authority to man. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So we see in this text, like we saw in Matthew chapter 8, another physical healing. Jesus steps in. And brings, um, and brings healing to someone who's hurting. We also see in this text just a little bit of teaching about what the kingdom of God look like, looks like, why it's here, and why his followers are following him in it. But we're also going to see Jesus do something he has not done yet, and we're going to see him say something that he has not said yet, and along the way we're going to meet a new guy who actually wrote the entire book that we're studying. We're going to hear his origin story a little bit. This text is going to be the backdrop of the first big spiritual realization that Jesus people have. That when I look at all of my life, my greatest need is a spiritual need. And when I look at everything going on in life, my greatest purpose is really my spiritual purpose. This text is going to be the backdrop to that. And we're going to learn the first thing that Jesus people know that they need to care about. Number one is they're standing with God. Like, The first thing that Jesus' people know about, care about, think about, is their standing before God. We could say their entire life is shaped by this reality. If you're locked in spiritually, at some point every day, you process every decision through the lens of one day standing before God. And it's not if you'll stand before God. It's that you'll stand before God and how you'll stand before God. So Jesus' people really have as a, as a great awareness in their life that one day I'm going to stand before God and the way I stand before God matters to me and the way I live my life today and this week and this year and next year affects my standing before God. So standing before God was a big deal for Jesus' people. In Matthew chapter 9, we learn a little bit about how Jesus helps us get ready to stand before God. It says, Jesus stepped into a boat and crossed over. Now, those are both kind of faith flashbacks because we saw Jesus calmed a storm in a boat. We saw Jesus cross from heaven to earth so that the cross could allow us one day to cross from earth to heaven. We've learned those two things in Matthew chapter 8. But here he is again, stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town, Capernaum. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, take heart, your sins are forgiven. Now, we've seen Jesus heal people. He's healed a leper. We've seen him heal the servant of a centurion who lies sick and paralyzed. We've seen him heal his disciple Peter's mother-in-law of a fever. We've seen him calm a storm. We've seen him heal a demon-possessed man. But he has not yet in the book of Matthew told anyone anything about their sins And now he speaks up to this paralyzed man laying on a mat, and he says, your sins are forgiven. We see a new element in area in the ministry of Jesus in our life. You say, what are sins? The Greek word that is used in the text is the word hamartia. Sins, theologically, is any act 
in our life that's contrary to the will of God and or the law of God. It's anything we do that God would not want us to do or that God has told us not to do. That's what sin is. If we were to really simplify it, sin is missing the mark of what God requires spiritually in order to live in relationship with him. And the man in Matthew chapter 9's primary problem was not that he could not stand up physically. It was that he was not able to stand up spiritually before God. He was laying before Jesus and Jesus looked at him and did not see his physical paralysis. He saw his spiritual paralysis and said, you are not yet ready to stand before God. You got a sin problem that I am going to take care of because your most important need is a spiritual one. So I recognize what's going on physically, but if I don't help you spiritually, you could have all the physical energy in the world and you would live an empty life and you would not be ready to stand before God. So he says, I tell you, your sins are forgiven. His primary problem was not physical, it was spiritual, just like us, just like us. Some of us, our spiritual problem is masked. Some of us, our spiritual paralysis is masked because we are not physically paralyzed. And we've not even yet realized that we need God for the spiritual problem going inside our life. But what we learn in this text from this man is our greatest need is not for Jesus to fix our problems in life. It's for Jesus to forgive the sin in our souls. Our greatest need spiritually is for Jesus to help make us right with God. Sin had been a problem for the people on planet Earth since Genesis chapter 3. And God had covered up that problem, but the covering of sin always led to the separation of sin. So Adam and Eve's sin was covered by skins, but that layer of skin kept them intimately from being connected to God. And Noah lived in a really sinful world, and God spared him from that sin, but he was covered with an ark that would keep him from being connected to God. And the people of Israel, as they left Egypt, their sin was covered by a lamb, but they had to go inside and hide under the blood of the lamb. There was a separation between them and God, and then a tabernacle would be built, and a temple would be built that would give people the opportunity to have their sin covered, but it still separated them from God. There was nothing that would connect the people of God to the heart of God because sin had separated them. And now here's Jesus saying, sin doesn't have to be a problem for you. Sin always equaled separation for the people of God in Scripture. But forgiveness led to restoration. Sin throughout the Old Testament had been covered. But that covering came with a requirement of separation. So only the high priest and then only once a year was able to go actually be in the presence of God physically because sin was still a problem. And here now Jesus comes and says, sin will no longer be your problem. Your sin is going to be forgiven. This message was the hope of Israel. They didn't recognize the messenger, but they wanted the message. The hope that sin could be forgiven was the hope of Israel. We read about it from the prophet Isaiah who starts his entire book saying, come now, let's settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they're as red as crimson, they shall be like wool. The people of Israel look forward to a time when someone could come and forgive their spiritual paralysis and sin. The psalmist said in Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west so far, has he removed our transgressions from us? Everybody was trying to figure out the sin problem. Everybody was trying to figure out the separation problem. Everyone was trying to figure out what will it take for God to accept me? So much so that the religious leaders that we meet in Matthew chapter 9 had taken the 10 commandments. They'd multiplied those to 614 commandments. And they said, if you keep all of these, that will end your separation from God. You will be connected to God if you keep every law perfectly. And now here's Jesus telling someone your sins are forgiven. 
We see a new side of the ministry of Jesus. Look, everybody knew that Jesus could heal physically. Now he was going to prove that he could heal, heal spiritually. They'd seen the physical healing. They had, they had so known Jesus could heal physically, it had become an inconvenience to them. When somebody would walk in the synagogue on the Sabbath needing healing, they knew Jesus was going to do it. They just wanted him to do it someplace else. It was like, can you handle that outside tomorrow? Like physical healing, no big deal. We're here for spiritual healing. Yeah, Jesus is the physical healing guy, but like just do that later because this is the place of spiritual healing. And Jesus steps in and says, I provide spiritual healing. He's offering forgiveness to somebody, but it's not one of them. He's offering forgiveness to a paralyzed man who probably hasn't followed very many of the 614 laws at all, probably never been to synagogue, never been to Torah school, wasn't a Pharisee, Sadducee, teacher of the law. He was just this paralyzed guy. Doesn't even appear he asks for forgiveness. And now Jesus says to him, your sins are forgiven. And this was a big deal to the religious leaders who said, wait a minute. We've already figured out a process for that. 614 laws, we keep them all. I don't think you can just show up and tell a guy that, like you've never even met this guy. And we see this conversation begin to unravel. At this time, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, this guy's blaspheming, knowing their thoughts. Jesus says, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? Now, he asked this question because he'd already been doing the other one. Like, do you think it's easy for me to walk the streets and heal lepers? Do you think it's easy for me to heal a centurion's servant without even being in the house? Do you think it's easy for me to probably heal the malaria that Peter's mother-in-law had? Like, do you think it's easy for me to tell the waves and the winds, stop it? Do you think it's easy for me to cast demons out of people? Like Jesus said, you've already seen that I have supernatural power, yet you've never even wondered if that supernatural power could impact the sin in your life and forgive the sin in your life. Like the whole point of my ministry, the culmination of all of the miracles is so that you know I can heal spiritually. Because physical healing is easy to prove. Either I do it or I don't. But the whole point of the physical healing is that I have the ability to do the spiritual healing. Which is easier, to do all all these things physically that I've been doing or to heal spiritually? You would say neither of them are easy. Both of them take supernatural power. I've shown you I have supernatural power in one, so you will believe that I have supernatural power in the other. This is the come and see ministry of Jesus. Come see and believe that I have supernatural power, and then apply that to the supernatural spiritual need in your life. The whole point of all of this is so you'll know I can forgive. I want you to know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Which is easier, to heal someone physically or spiritually? I've been doing all the physical stuff for one reason, so you see that I can heal spiritually. So he said, I'll go ahead and do it again. Said to the paralyzed man, get up, go home. He He got up and he went home. But Jesus said, I'm only doing that so you can see that I have the power to forgive. The point that Jesus is trying to prove in this entire narrative is that he has the power to forgive sin, to heal broken spirits. Listen, I'm glad this guy got up and walked home, but that is not the point. I'm glad that these friends had the faith to read what we read in Mark, to dig through a roof to bring their friends to Jesus. But the point of this text is not to convince you to bring your friends to Jesus. That's That's cool that it happened. There's good application there. Jesus said the point of this entire text is to prove one thing. I can forgive your sins and heal you spiritually. But you have to know you need a Savior. The point of the text is Jesus forgives sin. Amen? 
Look at someone and say, Jesus, forgive sin. That's the point. Jesus said, I've been doing all this for one reason, so you know that I can forgive sins. It's really important for you that, that it's really important for me that you know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And they got the point because they would use his exact phrase. After he did it, they were like, that's incredible. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God who had given such authority to man. Not authority to heal the man. Jesus said, I'm healing the man so you'll know I have authority to forgive sins. And right after they saw it, they said, that's incredible that he has that authority. It's incredible he has the authority to forgive sin. Yet not everyone who comes to Jesus is even aware of their sin. In Luke chapter 9, we meet three men that we talked about, the same three men in Matthew chapter 8, who told Jesus they wanted to follow him. But there was really nothing about repentance or sin. One said, I'll follow you if you tell me where you're going. And Jesus said, can't do that. Another one said, I'll follow you after I collect my inheritance. And Jesus said, can't do that. Another one said, I'll follow you when I'm done enjoying life with family and friends. And to all three, Jesus said, it's it's not going to work out for you. They committed to follow, but they ended up not following But none appear to have this defining moment in their life where they thought, my sin needs a savior. Follow, like your leadership, on my time, but not because I need you, maybe more because I want you. I love what Charles Spurgeon, the great London preacher of the late 1800s, said about this text in Luke 9. One thing I don't like about these people willing to follow is none of them appears to have any sense of sin. Nothing is said about repentance or about their deep need of a savior. I regret that there should be so many persons who have no repentance. So I want to follow Jesus, but I'm not a sinner who needs a savior. Believe it or not, there are lots of people in the faith world we call Christianity like this. About 20 years ago, in in mainline Christianity, uh, a movement emerged called the Emergent Church which is kind of like God doing new things. That's just what it was called. Then you don't need the scriptures. You don't need the history. Like, you just, like God is emerging and doing something new. He went through a wave where it was called liberal, liberal Christianity for a little while. They changed that because that seems so kind of contradictory. Now it's called progressive Christianity. It's this thought that we really need Jesus, but we don't want Christianity. Like we like Jesus, but we don't want all the other stuff. There's a process for those who live in this world called deconstruction. If you've heard a friend talk about deconstructing their faith, basically they're saying, like, I've, I'm trying to figure out why I follow Jesus and if I want to follow Jesus. And they're taking what is their world of faith and they're slowly pulling it apart to get back to the very foundation and trying to figure out, why do I follow Jesus and do I want to follow Jesus? Author and pastor um, and speaker Sean McDowell has done a lot of interviews in studying this area of deconstruction. And he said, the near common thread of anyone who has deconstructed their faith and walked away is they never felt a personal need for forgiveness of sin. They were never broken over their own sin. They never believed they were utterly sinful and helpless without Jesus. A church may have told them they were sinful. A church may have told them that they needed these things. But at the end of the day, their heart never really needed a savior because they weren't very sinful. They saw themselves as incomplete, but not dead spiritually. Journey Jesus is not Jerry Maguire. He does not complete you spiritually. Amen? He resurrects you. 
We are not incomplete people spiritually. We are dead people spiritually. And Jesus comes and he calls us to life through the forgiveness of sin. And there are so many people who've grown up in a religious culture like America who believe the prophet Luke Bryan who says, I just believe most people are good. Like, I, like I'm just comfortable believing most people are good. And to say that our hearts are filled with sin and our eternity is filled with hell without Jesus is just a step too far. It's just too negative. It's just too harsh. It's just too uncomfortable. I can never say that my heart is filled with sin and my eternity is filled with hell. That's just not me. It's not anyone I know. Now, it's somebody. It's Hitler. It's Osama bin Laden. But it's not me. There are some people whose hearts are filled with sin and whose eternities are filled with hell, but certainly not me. And I could never say that to anyone in my life. One of my favorite authors, Pastor John Mark Comer, who pastors in post-Christian Seattle, says progressive Christianity is only a rest area on the way to post-Christianity. Because when there is no sin, there is no Savior. And if Jesus is not your Savior, it's ludicrous to think you'd make him your master. You don't need him to tell you what to do if you've already got it all figured out. So Jesus' people believe in a Savior who comes to forgive sin. And I don't know if you realize it, but that's the message of this book. Grab your pens. Just the facts of Scripture. The English word sin is found in Scripture 832 times. Jesus uses the word sin 56 times. The English word love is found in some form or fashion in Scripture 555 times. And Jesus actually uses some form of the word love 77 times. Let's just look at the facts of this book. And let's just say some things out loud that need to be said, okay? The English word sin is found in this book 832 times. You say, then that is an offensive book. Yes, this is an offensive book to people who don't believe it and follow it. Yes, it is. And we need to stop trying to convince people who have already rejected Jesus that they can accept the book. This is an offensive book to people who do not believe the message about Jesus. You say, Jesus uses the word sin 56 times. That is offensive. Yes, the message of the gospel is offensive to those who do not believe. But yes, Jesus calls sin out in his ministry 56 times. You say, I thought the whole message of the book was love. It, it is. It's a big part of it. But how, how, how is God loving? Why is God loving? You say, God is love. Why? Is he a good guy? Does he send birthday cards? Like, what makes God so loving? Help, help me see what makes God so loving if it's not that he forgives sin. The thing that makes God so loving is our sin is so great, yet he died for it and he forgives it. You cannot have a God of love without a God who forgives sin. Like they go together. We have people who say, well, I want, the, I want this Jesus, but not this one. He ain't in this book. Write your own one. Start your new thing. Don't call it anything having to do with Christianity. This is the book. God is more loving than you think he is, but because you are more sinful than you think you are, and he loves you, and he forgives you anyway, amen? That is what Jesus' people believe. Jesus' people believe that the world is hopelessly broken by sin and separated from God for an eternity without Jesus, starting with us. But God loves us enough to forgive our sin. Our greatest need in life is a spiritual one. And one day we want to stand righteous, connected, okay, and forgiven before God. And Jesus gives us the opportunity to do that. That is who we are. That is what we believe. And once Jesus does that for us, we are a people who live on mission. We're people who live on mission. 
Matthew, who we meet in this text, immediately goes to work. Like he goes from the baptismal tank into full-time ministry. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. Here's what's pretty cool. Let me give you, let me give you, some, um, let me give you some Hebrew superstition. And some truth about Matthew 8 and 9 that's pretty cool. There are 10 supernatural acts mentioned in Matthew 8 and 9 if you count Matthew's salvation and call to ministry. There were six supernatural acts before Matthew's call. There were three after. He provides his story as the seventh of 10 things that Jesus did that blew the mind of the world. Is it possible that Matthew said of everything Jesus did in Matthew chapter 8 and 9, the greatest miracle is that he called me. You see, when Christians all start seeing our salvation as the greatest miracle that Jesus could do, we are on the right track to becoming Jesus people who are useful. When we say, yeah, he split the Red Sea and he gave bread from heaven and he raised Lazarus from the dead and you're like, yeah, 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 you ain't seen nothing yet. He saved me. He called me. Like, Lazarus waking up from the dead was probably more likely than me being impactful for Jesus. Yet here I am. That's Matthew's story. In the midst of the supernatural, Matthew's like, me too. God called me too. And we see this glimpse into the Jesus movement in the story of Matthew that I think is important for us in this season of our church. When the Pharisees saw Matthew and Jesus and all his buddies having dinner together, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I've not come to call the righteous. I've come to call sinners. If we look at a glimpse into the Jesus movement, we're going to see three things on day one. Division, desire, and declaration. First, we're going to see division. This is why we are studying spiritual warfare for 21 days of prayer. Because Satan is all about dividing people. Did you see what Satan did as he worked his way in this story? Do you see what we do as we work our way in the story? The Pharisees came and they asked Jesus' disciples. Instead of asking Jesus, why is he eating with sinners? The correct answer was, he's right there, ask him. But see how Satan sows division? Remember what Satan did to Eve? Daniel taught about it yesterday at Scripture. Satan came in and asked Eve, why would God say this? You know what Eve should have said? He'll be here about 5 o'clock. You can ask him yourself. See how Satan works? See the division and the divisiveness? I just want you to question things. I want you to wonder about things. I want you to question the integrity of people. See, like Satan never works directly because he's a coward for those who have the Holy Spirit in their life. And he never wants to stand before Jesus and God and talk to them directly. So when he says to the disciples, hey, why, you know, why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? They should have said, I don't, let me get him. And they'd have watched the Pharisees run away. When Satan says to Eve, well, tell me about this tree. And she said, God will be back at five o'clock. Why don't you come meet him? He wouldn't have shown up. But Satan works through division. And that's happening in our church right now. I hear the divisive statements as we get ready to head into our building. Our church is changing. Listen, our church isn't changing. Our building's changing. Thank God. But our mission is the same. Our vision is the same. I hope our impact is not the same. I hope it's greater because that's kind of the point. But our church is... Don't let Satan whisper division in your ear. Our church is changing. We're building a new building. No, it's not. We're going to be more on mission. 
than we've ever been before. If our church is changing, it's only getting back to what God called us to be and away from trying to play musical chairs with our congregation every week. Amen? Like, we got to be smarter than the devil. And then there's this thought of desire. I love what Jesus says. Like, why are you eating with them? Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. He actually gives us two pictures of desire. He says, one, I'm willing to help everyone who desires me, but you've not been asking for help. Every person we meet in Matthew chapter 8 and 9 either came to Jesus or were brought to Jesus because they needed Jesus. And the Pharisees watched the entire thing and stood off because they had no desire to be helped by Jesus. So Jesus said, I desire to help everyone who needs my help. So everyone who's brought to me, I'm going to help them. But he said, you need to learn what it looks like to desire me. You need to learn what it looked like to need me because the Pharisees didn't think they needed Jesus or his forgiveness. Why? Because they had figured out sacrifice. What is sacrifice? It was the religious system of Jesus' day. And in Hosea 6, verse 6, Hosea told the people of Israel, those of you who know how to do all of the sacrifices, but you're not giving your hearts and your lives to Jesus, you have lost the purpose of the mission. You know the structure that supports it. You know how to go to church. You know why it's important to go to church. But like you're doing the religious stuff without any of the relationship stuff. The Pharisees of Matthew chapter 9 had all the religious practices while missing the entire spiritual point of who God had called them to be and what God had called them to do. Jesus was saying, look around. We serve others and we reach others who don't know God yet. That's what we do. Like, this is the movement of Jesus, people. We serve people and we help other people who don't know Jesus yet. We don't stand back and question everything. You have all the spiritual practices. You miss the entire spiritual point. So he said, look at Matthew. Matthew's got it figured out, and he gives this declaration. Once our spiritual need is met, our spiritual purpose becomes clear. I've got to help everyone around me. The mission of Jesus was to call sinners. That's what you and I are. We're sinners who've been saved by grace. And Matthew figured it out fast. In Luke's version of this story, Luke says that Jesus met Matthew, called him to follow him, and then it says Matthew hosted a banquet at his home, probably not the same night, probably within a week. He prepared a lavish banquet and he called every friend and co-worker he knew and said, I want y'all to come to my house for a party. I've got a new friend named Jesus and I want you to meet him. That's what it looks like to live on mission. Jesus said, Matthew has it figured out. Matthew took the forgiveness I've given him and he's wanted to share it with everyone that he knows. He's got to figure it out. And that really is the purpose of our church, to help you see Jesus or serve Jesus. I don't know that I'd ever put it that clearly, but I was having breakfast with one of our new elders this week who his company was using our building the other week, and he was walking some members of his company through our new building. He said he walked him into the auditorium, the new auditorium space. If you've not been there, like after church today, walk into the new auditorium space, and if you do nothing else, just pray for the people that will come. And when the guy asked him, kind of like, what are you doing here? He basically said this auditorium. Don, I'm summarizing your words, so if I get it wrong, just tell me after, and I'll fix it for the 930 service. Um, he basically said, this space here holds, it serves two purposes, two types of people that will sit in this room. People trying to figure out how to see Jesus and people trying to figure out how to serve Jesus. Those are the only two people that will sit in the chairs in this room. People trying to figure out how to see Jesus and people trying to figure out how to serve Jesus. I do not think that is true of everyone sitting in this room today. But that is true of the mission of Jesus. So why are you living in the middle? And what is it going to take? Because if we were just to look practically, theologically, we would say, if you're not serving Jesus, it's because you've not seen him yet. I've seen Jesus. I'm going to follow. Okay, then, like, 
If you've seen him, you serve him. If you're not serving him, it's because you've not seen him. What's, what's going on in your world that maybe you've seen Jesus, but you've not started serving Jesus yet? You say, I'm taking a break to rest. Okay, that's good. But there are two real periods of defined rest from people who, who are taking a break from living on mission. One of them is 40 days in Scripture. We see Elijah who after three and a half years of drought of being fed by ravens at a brook is like, and, and then he goes and basically commits mass murder of false prophets and then he runs for his life for 40 days. Like after everything going on in his world for three and a half years, God's like, you're probably really tired. You need 40 days of rest. But then you're going to plug back in because 40 days will do it for you. And then there is this concept of the sabbatical year where you say, I've worked so hard for six, I'm going to take the seventh to rest, but my, own, my sole purpose of rest is so that I can plug back in after a year. And I think Satan's trick is to say you need a week off, you need a year off, you need years off, you need decades off, and all of a sudden you are neither someone who needs to see Jesus or are serving Jesus, you're kind of in the middle. And the thing that makes a church become a movement is when every seat is filled by one or the other. Someone who needs to see Jesus or someone who's serving Jesus. Which category do you fall into today? And what do you need to do to move with Jesus as one of his people? Jesus' people realize their greatest need is spiritual. And Jesus provides that. And our greatest purpose is spiritual. And Jesus provides that. And then we follow well. If you've never seen Jesus, if you don't know that your sins have been forgiven, today you can ask the God of heaven to forgive your sin and he will. And I encourage you to do that in just a second when we pray. If you've seen him, but are not serving him, you might need to go backwards in your calendar and say, has it been 40 days? It's been more than 40. Okay, has it been a year? It's been more than a year. Then it's time to re-engage. There's no time span in scripture longer than a year that anyone rests. It's time to re-engage. See him or serve him. That's what Jesus' people do. Would you pray with me as we consider these questions? Heads are bowed and eyes are closed all over the room. Our greatest need is spiritual. I have one simple question for you this morning. Are you ready to stand before God today? Because you know that you are forgiven and your relationship has been restored. If not, then today you need to pray a prayer of confession, asking God to forgive you of your sins, to remove the separation, and to make your heart one with his heart. If you've never done that, you need to understand Jesus loves you. He lived for you. He died for your unfaithfulness so your sin could be forgiven, so you could be close to him and one day stand before God in a right relationship. If you've never, if you've never handled that, today's the day to do that. You say, how do I do that? I am a sinner and I need a savior. Tell God what you just told yourself. If you've never prayed a prayer of confession and repentance, it sounds something like this. You can repeat after me, not out loud, but just from your heart to heaven, pray something like this. Jesus, I need you. Just repeat it after me. Jesus, I need you. Forgive me of my sin. Cleanse me of my past. Heal me of my hurt. And lead me into my future. Today I surrender my life to your leadership. I ask for your salvation. And I commit to follow you. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed all over the room. But if you just pray that prayer with me, I'd like to pray for you. 
say, Christian, how are you going to do that? I'm going to count to three in just a second when I get to three. If you just prayed with me and asked Jesus to forgive you of your sins, when I count to three, I'm just going to ask you to raise your hand, hold it up in the air for just a second. I'll have you put it down while everyone else's heads are bowed and eyes are closed. And I just want to say a quick prayer over you. If you prayed with me, would you let me pray for you by just raising your hand on the count of three? One, two, three, right now, just raise your hand up. Christian, I just prayed with you. Just leave them up in the air. There's people in every section. I'm going to count so you know when I'm done. One, two, three, four. Keep them up. Five, six, seven, eight, nine. You can put them down. God, thank you for the nine hands that I saw and maybe those that I didn't. Maybe those that weren't raised, but their heart was here. God, thank you that you are always willing to forgive sins. It's the first thing you want to do for us before you heal us physically, you want to heal us spiritually. Lord, thank you for these nine. Lord, who may have walked in, whatever their past has held, today it's been wiped away. And if they were to stand before you, they stand before you right because Jesus has forgiven. Bless them, Lord. As they begin their new journey with Jesus, I pray that the Holy Spirit will begin to speak to their heart, that their heart will feel differently about things, that their mind will think differently about things, that in their discipleship journey, they'll plug into learning who Jesus is and what his word says and how to apply that to their life and then how to tell someone else. God, bless those nine who just said yes to your forgiveness. And I pray that there'll be many more at 9, 30, and 11 who need the forgiveness of Jesus. Thank you that it's always available. Heads are still bowed and eyes are still closed. Our greatest purpose is spiritual. God heals you and forgives you to use you. And if you're a Christian who's not serving, it's time. It's time. It's always time. It's time to engage in serving his bride, serving his church for his purposes. It may take you a while to figure out what that means, but if you're a Christian not serving, just right now in your heart, would you tell God, I'm in? Like, God, whatever that means, I'm in. And would you go on a journey to figure that out between now and the end of the year? Father, thank you for the realization, realization number one of Jesus' people, that our greatest need is spiritual, but, but you meet that, and our greatest purpose is spiritual, but you tell us, and you call us to that. God, let us be a Jesus' people who is forgiven and on mission for you so that your kingdom might come and your will might be done through journey in our city, in our country, like it is in heaven. That's our prayer, and God, we ask it in Jesus' name today, and everyone said, amen.